Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. I am Jan Fran and today is Friday, the 4th of June. TGIF to you, Katrina Blowers. <laughs> you made it. Oh You've been God. on board every day this week. It's been <laughs> such a delight to hear your voice on this podcast every day. Well, thank you. It turns out that filling in for Tom Tilly is actually quite hard. And <laughs> <laughs> who knew? <laughs> who knew getting up at four in the morning every morning is a difficult thing to do? <laughs> All right, coming up on today's show, you might have heard this week that world number two Naomi Osaka walked out of the French Open citing mental health concerns. I think it's a brave thing that athletes are prepared to come out during and post-sport and talk about some of the battles they've had. On today's briefing, former track and field Olympian Jana Pittman on what it's like to be in the spotlight for a decade as an elite athlete. We aren't out there to become famous initially. We just Mm. want to run or play well for our country and we don't have a big social life. We're not great with engaging with people. So it it can be quite a challenge to know how to behave in the public eye. Yeah, we're going to get an inside view into what it's like to be at the top of your sport and struggling mentally before that, though. Let's hit the news of the day. So regional Victorians are today waking up to relaxed COVID restrictions and there are hopes that Melbourne's rules could be eased sooner than expected after two concerning COVID cases were found to be false. Yeah, the state's health authorities uh, yesterday announced that these two cases where the virus had appeared to be transmitted through um, what's called fleeting contact, were actually found to be false positives. Yeah, that was the kind of brushing up against each Mm. other or brushing past each other. Uh, The revelation has led to accusations of scaremongering against the Victorian government, Uh, the language they've been using like uh, this this is a beast, etc. But several epidemiologists say the news could herald an early end to the lockdown. Yeah, it comes as um, restrictions have eased in regional Victoria, but of course rules on masks and gatherings remain. Um, the acting Victorian Premier James Molino has called on the community to stay vigilant. I want to be back here next week talking about easing, careful easing of restrictions in Melbourne and further easings of restrictions in regional Victoria. But everyone's got a role to play here. Melbourne recorded three new local cases yesterday. And of course, it's going to be an interesting weekend. Uh, As we said, regional Victoria is going to have some easing of restrictions, but they'll still be affected uh, with lots of people from Greater Melbourne usually visiting those areas. And staying in Victoria, Melburnians will be the first in Australia to benefit from a new federal government wage subsidy for workers caught up in SNAP lockdowns. We're talking about someone getting through the next week, where every dollar counts. So that was the PM, Scott Morrison, announcing that plan yesterday. I don't know about you, Jan, but I have found it a little bit confusing reading through the fine print. Yeah, a lot of caveats. Who's eligible for this and who isn't. Um, So this temporary COVID disaster payment will see people who work regular hours be paid up to $500 a week if they are affected by a lockdown in a federally declared hotspot. Yeah, and um, that's important to note. It's federally declared. It's not state declared. So the feds are the ones making the decisions here. Yeah, the Commonwealth Health Officer, Paul Kelly, must also declare that it's a hot spot for this to kick in. So the Commonwealth's decision to provide that support will be based on the medical advice received by the Chief Medical Officer of the Commonwealth, which is only reasonable given that the Commonwealth has no part in the decisions made by state governments 
when they're coming to their view as to how they might impose their restrictions. So you can see some possible argy-bargy down the track, some possible turbulence ahead with this one. So, um, for example, if the Commonwealth no longer defines a particular area as a hotspot, even if there is still a lockdown in place by the state, you don't get the payment. So there, right. there could be some possible inconsistencies at some point. Yeah, indeed. And uh, I think the argy-bargy will happen at National Cabinet today. Of course, the federal government is hoping that the states will kick in and Mm. share this payment equally. But let's go through some of the loopholes that we were talking about. So this will be available for anyone over 17 and it'll be $500 a week for people who normally work more than 20 hours a week, $325 a week for people who normally do less than 20 hours. But here's the kicker. Mm. You actually have to have less than $10,000 in the bank. If you've got $10,000 or more, you're expected to drain your savings before you're eligible for this payment, which is different to JobKeeper. Yeah, that's right. And and you can't be receiving any other um, pandemic payments or be on any kind of pandemic leave either. So I think, you know, it, it sounds good and, and certainly the people of Victoria absolutely need this help. But when you read the fine print, there are going to be a lot of people that won't be eligible for it. Now, in addition to this, there's news that the federal government's also delivered what's called a memorandum of understanding to the Victorian government, in which they've agreed to help pay for a dedicated quarantine facility in the state, which is something that um, states have been calling for for some time now. I was listening to Brendan Murphy, actually, at Senate Estimates this week, and he said that there'd been 21 breaches of hotel quarantine in Australia. He did put it in perspective, though, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have come through hotel Mm. quarantine. So when you compare those numbers, it's, you know, it's quite low. However, those breaches end up leading to what we're seeing now in Victoria. So they might be few but the consequences are huge. And Jan, what concerns me about this is we're into June now mm. and this has been talked about. We we had these plans put to the government in February, but there's so much conjecture over where these facilities should be and who should be eligible to stay there. I just wish they would get their acts together because we keep seeing hotel quarantine breaches while we're discussing, you know, yeah. the, the details of these propositions. Well, it's going to be a robust discussion at National Cabinet today, Well, the US government has announced plans to become a global vaccine arsenal, saying it will share a surplus 80 million COVID vaccines with other countries. Yeah, this was in a statement that Joe Biden released. He said that his government um, wasn't sharing doses in an effort to secure favours quote, unquote, um, but that it was leading by example. I think he might be trying to secure favours just quietly. Well, but- I was going to say, the countries that you know, they're going to share with are all American allies, surprise, surprise. America will donate 75% of its leftover vaccines to the UN's COVAX initiative, which funnels doses to mainly developing countries. Yeah, the Biden administration says that the 80 million doses will be dispatched uh, before the end of June, So in the next few weeks, really, with Latin America, the Caribbean and Southeast Asia expected to be priority destinations, there's been 41% of the US population that have been fully vaccinated. That's extraordinary. I'll also add that if you read the details of this proposition, again, not taking anything away, it's great that the US is sharing vaccines with the world, Mm. but a lot of them, the bulk of them are actually AstraZeneca, which haven't been approved for use in the US yet. Ah, okay. That, That takes the shine off it a little bit. 
And this is a little bit exciting. America's United Airlines has announced plans to bring back supersonic air travel, saying it will buy 15 planes capable of flying twice the speed of normal passenger aircraft. We're still dreaming about flying somewhere, <laughs> anywhere I one know. day. <laughs> yeah, the airlines agreed to purchase the Overture aircraft from Boom Supersonic and begin trialling them, wait for it, in 2026 <laughs> um, before running them on commercial routes um, before the end of the decade. So, you know, it's an announcement. There's still some time before it comes to fruition. Um, these planes can fly at more than 2,000 Ks per hour and they would have cut flight time between the US and Europe by half. As an Australian who lives in the upside-down hemisphere, Like, if they can speed up air travel, I'd be very happy with that. (laughs) Indeed, but this is, you know, not cheap flights. This very expensive technology. Mm. The last uh, company, which I think was a Boeing-backed company that tried to um, get this forward, they couldn't get the funding for it because it's so, so expensive. And we haven't seen supersonic flights for this reason, really, since 2003, when British Airways and Air France retired their Concorde aircraft from service. There was also... a a pretty horrendous crash in 2000 where um, over 100 people died um, due to um, there was uh, some debris on the tarmac and some Mm. faults with the tyres. So that's been another thing that has stopped this kind of technology from from being brought back. Yeah, well, they don't sound like they're rushing into it. The deadline is end of the decade for commercial routes. So, you know, maybe by then we'll be able to afford it. Yeah. All right, they are your top stories for Friday. In a sec, we're going to get an insider look into what it's like to be one of the world's top athletes and struggle with your mental health. Well, it's a walkout that's turned into a watershed moment for not only how the media covers sport, but how much access we as the public can demand from the world's top athletes. Naomi Osaka has withdrawn from the French Open. Such a sad, sad situation. One of the game's best. Nobody wins when the best tennis player in the world would rather not play. You don't make £30 million a year before even hitting a ball. You do have to feed the press a few lines. Yeah, Naomi Osaka, the world number two, no less, uh, this week stunned everybody when she pulled out of one of tennis's biggest tournaments, citing mental health issues. We are sorry and sad for Naomi Osaka. The outcome of Naomi withdrawing from Roland Garros is unfortunate. We wish her the best and the quickest possible recovery. That was Gilles Morton there, the president of the French Federation of Tennis. Later, Osaka released a short statement via her own personal social media accounts saying that she suffered from depression and really the depression began in this moment. It is Naomi's moment, but much of the story, as it always is, centres around Serena Williams. Good evening, everyone, and we welcome you to the trophy celebration of the United States Open. Now, that was the crowd booing Osaka when she beat Serena Williams in the finals of the 2018 US Open. Uh, Venus Williams, Serena's sister, then delivering this mic drop moment about how she deals with the pressure of press conferences. I know every single person asking me a question can't play as well as I can and never will. So no matter what you say or what you write, you'll never light a candle to me. That's how I deal with it. Oh, that's one way to deal with it. (laughs) I love that. Can't play as well as I can and never will, frankly. 
This whole thing, though, has raised um, some very big questions about whether we are maybe expecting too much from modern athletes. So a lot of people don't realise this, but at the tennis, the players come straight off the court. They then have to do several interviews in the tunnel and then they make their way to a packed media room where they often have to answer tonnes of questions about things like politics over and over again in lots of different languages. And this is all before they've had a chance to even recover from the match that they've just played. Yeah, it also highlights the mental health challenges that many of the athletes face when they're in the spotlight. So... On today's briefing, we're going to go behind the scenes to get an insight of what that world is like. And we're going to get it from the perspective of an elite athlete. Joining us now is Aussie track and field star Yana Pittman. Yeah, Yana was in the spotlight for over a decade. She's an Australian Olympian. She's a Commonwealth Games gold medalist, two-time world champ. Two to get over. Pittman leads by four. Five metres over Paris and Danvers. Stumbles a bit at the last. Gets over it. She's home. Pittman's away. And the 19-year-olds get a win brilliantly. 54-41. She's now a doctor. And uh, since leaving the sport, she's written and spoken extensively about that time and how it impacted her own mental health. She joins us now. Yana, thank you so much for joining us. What did you make of Naomi Osaka pulling out of the French Open? Well, I think it's a really brave thing to do, to be honest, because, you know, there's a lot of athletes that come out and um, struggle with mental health and being able to be honest about where their life's at on on different on different levels and public scrutiny and, and, and just, you know, how, what the effect it would have on their sponsorship and, and their actual engagement in, in the public view is is really challenging to do. So I think it's a, it's a brave thing that athletes are prepared to come out during and post-sport and talk about some of the battles they've had. Yana, you've definitely been in the full glare of the spotlight as an (laughs) Olympian, as a Commonwealth Games gold medalist, a world champ. What is it like? Like, can you paint a picture for us once you reach that elite level? What does that machine look like? Who do you have? Have you got a manager? Have you got a PR person? Yeah, who's calling the shots? (laughs) <laughs> Look, that's actually a fantastic question because it's very different for every athlete. And certainly for me, I went to my first Olympics at 16 um, and I was sort of thrown into the spotlight quite young and didn't have any of that sort of network that you guys are sort of talking about behind me. And it was hard, hard to know when to not say something, hard to know when to do an interview because athletes aren't politicians. We aren't out there to become famous initially. We just mm. want to run or play well for our country. And certainly not having that media training can be really challenging because the other thing you want to think of is that most of us are so driven and passionate. We don't have a big social life. We're not great with engaging with people. So it, it can be quite a challenge to know how to behave in the public eye. How much of a pressure cooker are these situations, particularly for someone who doesn't really want to be around people that doesn't really want to front the press and be so public? It's another good question because I think actually that's more common in sport than the opposite extrovert. And I think even me, and I think probably people will laugh a little bit about that because I know I'm quite confident and I, and, I, and I did a lot of media when I was younger, um, but it was almost a falsification of, of my personality on the inside. I was so nervous about being disliked and so mm. such a dork at school and so awkward in a social setting like she's saying she is that you almost fake it and act out to try and cover that side of yourself because you're embarrassed by being so introverted I guess in in that aspect but it is also hard because if you think about it to be great you're a solo player so as a tennis player track athletes it's not like a team sport you Mm. most of the time train by yourself you might listen to a coach or a physio but the majority of the time you're very comfortable being alone it takes that kind of personality that doesn't really need people around so then all of a sudden you become famous and you're in the front 
front of the media and you're in front of the television and everybody's asking your opinions and your questions. And I reckon sometimes we say the wrong things because we don't necessarily have the right skills to make good answers or to believe in yeah. what we actually have to say is, is wants to be heard. Were you made to front the media? Like, was that something that was in your contract that you had to do yes. either before or after races? Okay, can you tell us about Correct. that? We always need sponsors. Athletics is not a particularly well, lucrative, like it's not a lucrative career. So I was in my contract to do certain appearances and certain TV, like give exclusive interviews and things like that. You're always sort of pushed out there and, and trying to say the right thing and a little bit nervous you're going to say the wrong thing. And that can be very, very draining on you mentally. Naomi talks about, you know, that moment in 2018 when she was booed by the crowd. What's it like having to front up in front of the cameras directly after that? It's heartbreaking because... Obviously, you're already so disappointed in your own performance, like, and you've let yourself down. Or even if you've played really, really well, and you and you think you've done a great job, and perhaps maybe the sponsors or the fans don't. It's it's we already feel it acutely more than everybody else does, and it lives with us every day. So it's definitely hard in that moment to be able to give a good interview or to be able to actually talk about how it feels. And it's also public because if you get, I have been booed on a stage before, and it was, oh man, I, I fought so hard not to cry because <laughs> I cry anyway, as you probably know. But I Why fought so hard to stand. What was that for? Um, it was after the Commonwealth Games. I'd won, actually. I'd won the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne, and I'd had that public falling out with one of my friends, Tams and Lewis, back in the day. And I think the crowd had a lot of Tams and supporters, and they, you know, there'd just been some really negative press. And she and I were best friends, just to put it out there, We've, and we're still very good friends now. And it was a complete misrepresentation by the media, but yeah. it was hard standing on that stage and hearing that because you just think, oh my God, there's people in here that hate me. And what am I going to do? Do I just stand here and, or do I walk off? Like it's, it's, a, oh. it's a difficult, really difficult decision to make. To go back to what Naomi Osaka said, you know, some of the things that she was saying was that people at these press conferences sort of have no regard for the athlete's mental health and how they're feeling in that moment. And, you know, some of the questions that they ask kind of tend to make brutal. it. Yeah, a brutal. I mean, do, is yep. that your experience as well? Do you relate yeah. to that? 100%. And I'm, But I'm going to flip it on its head as well. Ultimately, journalism, and you guys are doing similar things, is to make stories. It's their job as well. So unfortunately, when we decide that we are going to go in the public light and become an elite athlete, obviously you do fall into it more with sport because it's a talent versus rather than chasing fame. But we also know that the journalist on the other end is just trying to get their job and their life and feed their kids. Mm. So I certainly have had some terrible stories and I look back at it and think, why did they write that? But then you see they get a promotion at work. And that's why they did it. Ultimately, it's a different form of, of work, but it, they know that they have to make some really hard calls and it takes a certain personality to be prepared to do that journalism and, and get the stories out there for people. But we are aware that that is, that is their job. It's not a direct attack on us. It is ultimately what they're being paid to do. I imagine there'd be a bit of a push-pull relationship between elite athletes and the media. In On one sense, the media can be brutal and, you know, they they sap a lot of your energy. But in another yeah. way, they also kind of raise your profile and, you know, turn, exactly. you, turn you With into somebody too. and sponsorship. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And, and and you can't do one without the other. With the world of social media these days and, and the funding comes through your your fame. So it's a sort of chicken and egg situation because you can't have one without the other. But there are definitely people, and Naomi and I copped it late in Hewitt, a few of us that for some reason attract more negative press than positive. And, and it's it's interesting to see why someone versus someone else. Do you know what I mean? When you're both equally or a lot of you are on the same level in terms of um, talent and, and achievement, but there must be some cues or ways to address and talk with the media that are more effective than others. That's all I'm saying. It's so interesting though, like you say, you can't do one without the other, you've got to have both. But I think with the growth of social media platforms, you don't really need to do mainstream media as much now, don't you think? Like, I think it's really changed the game. 
it's funny you say that because I, I really wish there had have been social media back when I was like, you know, 2003 to 2008 during the height of my athletics career because it would have been really great to engage directly with the public to discuss some of the stories that have been printed, for example. Mm. So, yeah, no, you, you have a good point there. In, in that respect, if you don't like doing media stuff, you could certainly back off. Um, sponsors probably wouldn't allow that though. So mm. they will put an event on where you're the glistening star that's there and they will always bring press to those events. Yeah, and the, and the post-race and the post-game press conferences, you, you, it's hard to avoid those two. I, I suppose if you're super elite, you could just say no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They can't force you. Maybe that's the new thing. We should tell our youngsters to just say to say no to press conferences. Well, that's what's happening with Naomi. I mean, she's uh, yeah, world she's number two, you know, so she is at yeah. that super top level and, and she just yeah. – she's come out and said no. no. And and that is yeah. because of mental – her mental health and yeah, the impact yeah, that it's had. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, yeah. you that's something that you've spoken about a lot. In fact, you, you've written a book and it's about your struggle with bulimia and what it was like having bulimia while trying to be, while being an elite athlete. You're right, at the height of my career, I was broken in a way that no one could see. And I wonder, do do you think that the public has a skewed view of what life is really like for elite athletes? Oh, I, I think so, because we grow up as young people wanting to be elite athletes, looking at the type of lifestyle some of our heroes live and thinking, wow, I want to be that. But as I sort of said right at the beginning, it can be very lonely. Like a majority of the time when you're on your own, you're racing around the world doing all these amazing things, but you're you're solo. It can be a very lonely sport. Um, you're also not entirely sure who your true friends are as you get closer to the top and everybody wants a piece of you. So I think it's mm, it can scary. be quite challenging to find who you are as a person and you can get very caught up in the hype of what the media is even saying about you and lose who that sort of that true person was as a young person as and, and even your desire for why you're doing what you're doing can be quite easily swept away. So do you think this is a watershed moment? Do you think this is going to change the game in the terms of the way that the public and the media interface with elite athletes? be great if it did, wouldn't it? It's been happening probably for the last three or four years that people are starting to talk about that there's a human behind the athlete and that we do need to be a bit more protective both during and post-sport. So I guess it's essential that we listen. Yana, you're now a doctor. I don't know if a lot of people know that. You've got four children. <laughs> um, we were fangirling over you in here before the <laughs> interview started and we were both just disgraced at how extraordinary you are. In terms of your kids, would you want them to follow in your footsteps and become elite athletes themselves? <laughs> I get asked this all the time. Um, I'd say no, actually. I'd love them to find a balanced life and my life has absolutely not been anywhere near balanced. <laughs> so, yeah, I just want them to be happy. And I'm not saying that sport can't make that for you. I certainly think team sports are a lot better. Doing bobsled with my with a co-pilot with another girl was fantastic, having that support with, with someone else. But, you know, I think sport is one of those things, if you love it, you do it. And the minute you stop losing that love, I would just hope my children are clever enough to switch off at that point. That was... Aussie Olympian Yana Pittman there reflecting on that time and uh, it's interesting to hear her say that she wishes in some way that social media had been a thing when she was an athlete in the early 2000s. It certainly does enable athletes to own the game and own their coverage in a way that they couldn't do back then when they had to rely on major media outlets to spin that narrative for them. But what it does do, Jan, and what I am concerned about is that it doesn't allow for any depth in reporting. You don't have somebody else asking the questions Mm or that outsider making those observations. And don't forget to catch Jamila tomorrow on the Weekend Briefing. Hello, Jam, what's in store for tomorrow? Tomorrow's Weekend Briefing is a really beautiful and a really special one. I'm chatting to 
Claire Bowditch. And listeners probably know Claire from one of her many pursuits. She's a singer, actress, radio host, business owner, best-selling author. She's also one of my dearest friends. So this conversation goes deep. We talk about grief. Claire lost her mum, Maria, uh, during the pandemic last year. And she's still holding that grief pretty heavily. We also speak about bodies and body image and the expectations we have about what bodies should be and what they should look like, including the ones we have in our own heads and how we beat ourselves up with them all the time. I think this is a really heartwarming chat. And so if you're in for some life-affirming time, make sure you tune in. Always in for some life-affirming time with you and Claire Bowditch tomorrow. That's the Weekend Briefing. Catch you soon. Listener.